Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. So you want to know why I'm laughing? Yeah. Because I'm sitting on a stool next to my bed in my little hotel room in Napa Valley. <laughs> and I feel like I'm really short. <laughs> the giant well, you made door. it work. You I'm, made I'm, it work. I'm in Land of the Lost. No, Why that's not the right. No, Land of the Giants. Oh my gosh. I'm dating myself. <laughs> land of the Giants. <laughs> it's like, why is it Land of the Lost? Yeah, that was a that was a different movie. That's about dinosaurs. This has nothing to do with dinosaurs. Unless <laughs> unless I'm describing myself. <laughs> How are you doing today? Um, I am great. I've been up since 6:30. I had to reorganize some stuff because I'm headed off tomorrow to Hawaii and I've got to get everything organized. But then I've been um researching lots and lots and lots of stuff and I, my head is so full of stuff that i don't know that we're going to get to all of it today because we want to do a topic on hemorrhage but but um there's so many other things that people have been sending me and i've been in contact uh, when i spend two days with a glorious group of birth workers like i did this week um i start i have a whole new group of people emailing me and messaging me with with comments or questions or pointing things out, wanting to make sure that I'm aware of it. So that means that they obviously respect my opinion and that's a really nice place to be. Yeah. So how are you? Um, I'm doing okay. Yeah, waiting on a baby. Um, I went and saw Maverick at your recommendation yesterday. So that was fun. Yeah, no, I liked it. I enjoyed it. It had the, it had the air of an old movie, you know, like the way that it would kind of played out. So it was nostalgic and I enjoyed it. So it two, nice thumb, two thumbs up from Bliss and Dr. Stu. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Our, our, our movie review. You get so much value out of this podcast. <laughs> or, yeah. Remember we used to do movie. We did movie reviews a couple of times. <laughs> when we could actually go to the movies and see things. It looks like some good stuff's coming out though. So I'm excited. Elvis is coming out. That looks like it'll be good. I think the final, final, almost final, just like Barbara Streisand's final concert or Elton John's final concert, which is never the final concert. It seems like the final Jurassic Park might be coming out. Oh, this week. oh okay. But there's never a final. If it can make money, they'll make another one. They'll, <laughs> they they'll, lie. They'll clone all the, they'll clone Sam Neill and all the, the older guys and they'll have them come back as younger guys or they'll do a prequel to Jurassic Park. <laughs> Time travel. Yeah, it, it is kind of weird to get older and see like these young actors from these movies that we grow up with, like the being the elders and dying and stuff. It's, it's an interesting shift. Well, you know, um, that's very interesting. You should say that because I thought about that when I watched Top Gun Maverick because I think Val Kilmer is about three years older than Tom Cruise, maybe, yeah. four, maybe four. And, you know, Val has a degenerative cancer, I think of his throat or something like that. And, and the difference in how they look. Yeah. And they're close to the same age is it just tells you that 
Some people get lucky. I mean, I, I watched, by the way, on TV, I was flipping channels last night, not last night, the night before, and Risky Business was on. Yeah. And I watched the train scene. Uh-huh. And, well, you do that when you're alone, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, no comment. Uh, but Tom Cruise was such a little boy. Yeah. That was his first movie, I think. Is I think not. It was either that one or it was... Um, Legend, I think one of those one of those first two movies, but mm -hmm. yeah, but he was well, a, boy, a boy in all of them. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to our movie review. <laughs> we'll see you next week. All right. Um, so, uh, what do you have on the agenda? Because I have one letter, and then I have some quick news clips that I have to go over a little bit of typical sarcasm, cynicism that you. Yeah. Like. Well, we talked about today's topic is going to be about hemorrhage, and I do have a. a fellow traveler question in regards to hemorrhage. So why don't you do your other stuff first and then we'll get to hemorrhage. All right. Let me put my glasses on. Do that. And let me um, go to my, uh, my. And if you need, if you need something uplifting, I can read something from one of my spiritual teachers. Well, I'm going to read from, uh, you know, it's funny every Wednesday morning, about an hour before the show, I get my weekly UCLA email. Uh-huh. Okay. And so this week's email um, tells me that it's International Men's Health Week. So did you know that? No. And two days ago, it was it was International <laughs> Home Birth Day. <laughs> I know. I know. There's it, so many it, days. And, and it's Pride Month. I do know that it's Pride Month. Right. I do know. Yeah. So, God, I mean, everything's something. But just so you know that uh, UCLA is ready to take care of your medical needs if you're a male. So I want you to know that. Okay. And then they also talk about um, what you need to know about monkeypox. And what they do say, you need to know about monkeypox? Well, monkeypox has been reported in the United States, including a presumptive case in LA County, but that's still awaiting CDC confirmation. But of course, that's worthy of a news article on the UCLA printout. So it, it says, while the risk of contracting the disease is low, yeah, how many people, a million people live in Los Angeles? 10? 10? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so if it is even monkeypox, the risk of contracting it's like one in 10 million. I know that that's <laughs> not direct math because who knows where this person got it. The fact that it's even a, a, a headline in their weekly announcement, um, you, they want you to know that UCLA Health is monitoring the situation and it's prepared to treat it. So they want well, you to know that. So does that make you feel better? Know. Um, yeah, totally. Thank you. And then um, my, our friend of the podcast, not Dr. Shangjin Yang from UCLA, who we've quoted several times uh, uh, with his absurdities, just wants you to know that it is safe to travel this summer, but there's a question and you should be concerned and you should be wary and you should read everything that you have to do and you should wear your masks in certain situations. And I, I, I can't even go on anymore because <laughs> he drives me crazy. Hey. Um, these people are never canceled or censored or when they're proven to be wrong is we're going to talk a lot about stuff today. Um, things that have been said that have been, were so wrong and they can't even make the case that they didn't know it was wrong anymore because documents are coming out 
from Pfizer's internal, uh, well, their, their internal documents are coming out revealing so much stuff. So I have a couple things about that in, uh, that somebody sent me and I wanted to just talk a little bit about that. I just wanted to say that also uh, one more thing on my computer here is that the, um, oh, doctors are, uh, this is a good one though. Doctors are suing the Food and Drug Administration over ivermectin. Yeah. So this is good. Mm -hmm. So the lawsuit was filed on uh, behalf of three doctors who were disciplined for prescribing human-grade ivermectin to patients. And um, it's well-established in law that do allows doctors to prescribe FDA-approved drugs as an off-label treatment. Ivermectin was no different. Um, Congress has actually passed a law that said it's... Uh, this is a long time ago, passed a law that said that recognizing the importance of letting doctors be doctors and expressly prohibiting the FDA from interfering with the practice of medicine. And yet they did. They even put out a, see if I can find it here. Um, the FDA put out a tweet um, back in August of 2021 that said, quote, you are not a horse. You are not a cow. Seriously, y'all, stop it. Okay. That came from our FDA. So they're, they're suing. And I hope that, uh, you know, the problem is bliss is when they sue the government, they're technically suing you and me. Yeah. Because if they in win and there's a, somebody has to pay them some money for something like that, this mm -hmm. just, it's never, these people are never held personally accountable. And I would like to see that when people lie, they lose their protection that they get from working for the government or their immunity from working for the government. If you're caught doing something nefarious, you shouldn't be offered government blanket protection. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. Right. So. Truth. Okay. Um, so that's that. Oh, I have... Um, thing about the uh, cottage industry of um of medicine and let me see if i can find it here it is um i got a notice that that if you wanted to take a course on navigating the regulations for the new no surprise act which is supposedly coming out of congress have you heard of this act bliss i have not okay apparently it's about it's supposed to be truth in advertising and 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 posting your prices and that sort of thing. So people know what they're getting billed, but there's nothing. If that were the case, the bill could be one page, right? I don't know, maybe. Well, I'm sure it's hundreds and hundreds of pages, <laughs> but it'll be no surprise to you, Bliss, that the No Surprises Act is one of the most confusing provisions to regulate the healthcare industry in recent times. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> The act has changed the process of how you balance bill commercial insurance patients and how you bill out of network and uninsured patients. If there ever was a time for anybody listening to try to get out of taking insurance, now would be the time. It, I mean, the time has passed a decade ago, but now's another good reason to get out of doing that because the objectives of this seminar, which is gonna cost you a pretty penny to take, and that's why I call it a cottage industry. We've created these industries to help you navigate the maze of rules that come out that, that the average person can't figure out. You need to, um, 
analyze the impact of the surprise billing regulations, describe how to develop monitoring tools, explain the independent dispute resolution timing process, learn the difference between a billing notice and a good faith estimate notice, learn the type of balanced billing notices, learn balanced billing in, of in-network and out-of-network, know the rules of non-physician practitioners. I'm gonna go on, I could go on and on. I know that I, I can't even see your face, but I'm sure you're glazing over. Um, well, please don't. <laughs> right, but I will, I, I will just tell you that this is just another example of how our system is just so completely broken. It's so overregulated. You've got middlemen in between, and now you've got the government regulating the middlemen and how you interact with them. And the idea that you as a practitioner get to interact with your client or patient um, will never be left alone. It will never be left alone in this system, and you have to get out of it, period. Are you going to drop your mic now? Uh, it's too expensive. I can't do that. <laughs> That was like a that was totally a drop mic moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and in order to understand any of that, you're going to have to hire a billing person in order to do that for you because you're busy, hopefully, doing medicine or charting, which is what most people are doing. Um, so you know, there there lies the issue of um, being able to do medicine in the way that we do it and afford it. Right? If you have to play that game. Yeah. And you know, you know, Bliss, I'll just say this, and I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. I'm not in a place where I'm in a place right now where I'm financially fine. So while I was in uh, Reading, I had my, my day out. I took a day to stay in Reading after the conference, just to relax. And I went for a long bike ride that morning. I went to the sundial bridge. I did all that. I think I even talked about it briefly on my solo podcast, which came out last week mm -hmm. um, with the, you know, completion of the Sally Ann Beresford uh, interview. But um, I got called that afternoon by one of the midwives in town to come and do a repair. <laughs> I know, that's amazing. Yeah. So um, I came, was it gnarly? It was a gnarly little tear. It, it, she actually had torn where she had torn with her first baby. So that's very mm -hmm. common when you have scar tissue. Um, if you're not really careful, even if you are really careful, um, scar tissue doesn't have the same collagen and elastin that your regular skin does. And so it's very common to tear in the same place. And in the tear were some things called epithelial inclusion cysts, mm -hmm. which what happens is, is where some of the epithelium gets buried at the first repair and it continues to secrete. And so it had this, you know, slight, not a smaller than a marble, but a, but a pea-sized cystic area filled with sebum, sebaceous material. Epithelium is the, the top, uh, Tissue. Yeah, squamous epithelium. Yeah, epithelium is a layer mm -hmm. of anything, but it's um, squamous epithelium is what your skin is made out of. So that shouldn't be buried underneath. So it was an error in the in the search in the. It doesn't repair? doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be an error. It could have been something microscopic. It's not like somebody mm -hmm. was negligent or anything. It happens. I've seen okay. this dozens of times uh, mm -hmm. in doing re repairs or or or, or tears. Okay. So, um, but anyway. Um, at the end, they asked if they could charge me, you know, and I said, no, if they could pay me, the midwife insisted and she handed me some cash, but, but very, but I, I wasn't going to, I mean, what I charge for that in LA is a lot sometimes. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think it's close. It's 500 to a thousand bucks. I can't, I can't really remember, but I think for me to drive someplace and come and do a repair, 
but it does save them from having to get out of their own bed and go to the hospital and be separated from their baby and all that other stuff. So, but I, you know, I wasn't going to do that because, because I just met these people. They're lovely. And I, I didn't have to deal with a third party payer. I didn't have to deal with anybody. My point being that it was me and them and there was nobody yes. in between us. Yes, absolutely. And that was very kind of you. It was fun, actually. <laughs> oh, good. I know you're a surgeon at heart. You enjoy doing that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say any names or anything. But one of the midwives that was there while I was sewing, there was an area that looked a little more puffy because I, I hadn't put it together yet. And she's holding the flashlight for me, and I, and she says, "What's that swollen thing there?" And I looked at her and I go. I'll tell you about it afterwards. You don't ask that question with the woman <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> what what is that? You know, you know you've got you've, you know. There's we talked a little bit about social cues. Yes. At one did. of our podcasts recently. Uh huh. And that's another one. <laughs> you got to remember your audience. You don't totally. say stuff like, "Oh my God, what is that?" Totally. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I do well, remember, I do remember a ve- the very first uh, delivery that I attended where there was a big tear and I, you know, I mean, I have a vagina. I, I know what they look like and I, I could not figure out what I was looking at and the midwife was pointing things out to me and I was still, I was like, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to know how to do this. Um, it does. It is interesting sometimes. Yeah. 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 But the well, point was, is that the they point was lucky. that the transaction was between me and the patient and it had nothing Absolutely. to do with any third party. And the idea that now we have to hire people to educate other people that we hire to, in order to collect the 12 cents on the dollar that we get paid. And we're going to continue to do that. That's not for me. Yeah. And, you know, it's not for people like Dr. Flores and and a few other people that I know. And it's certainly not for most midwives. They don't want to deal with that sort of thing. It, right. interfe- it interferes in your relationship and it's time consuming. And, yeah, it, no and, it, and it builds resentment. Okay. 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 I, ha- I have one email, uh, one uh, Instagram message. I could hold it or I could go for it. It's not very long. Go for it. All right. It's from Megan. Hello, Megan. Uh, I'm 24 years old. I live in Southern California. I am the first time mom to my daughter who was born recently on April 6th. Ever since my daughter's birth, I have been binging your podcast to gain some insight on the lost art of breech birth. I have a deep passion for birth and prenatal care since I was a teenager. My husband and I always knew we wanted to have a home birth before we even planned to start a family. On April 5th, after peacefully laboring at home and reaching Complete dilation, things started to turn for the worse. Baby's heart rate began showing signs of fetal distress as she fluctuated between 65 and 170 with her baseline previously at 130. Yeah, not good. I immediately asked my midwife to perform a cervical exam to get some insight into far how far away I was from pushing. When she te- checked me, I was told I was dilated at one centimeter which confused us all as I was showing signs of transition. Later to find out that she was feeling the baby's what? Rectum. Anus, right. Yeah, I've been here. I've been through that one before. 
Yeah, with concern of fetal distress and confusion between midwives present, we ultimately made the decision to transfer. When we reached the hospital, we quickly discovered through ultrasound that she was in the frank breech position. I was immediately taken in for an emergency cesarean. So I'm not entirely, entirely convinced that she knew she was breech until what that point. What do you mean? That she, she knew before? Yeah, up until they, they did an ultrasound at the hospital or until the woman did a vaginal exam and thought she was one centimeter. That I think they didn't know that she was breech, right? That's No. The, okay. Yes. No. Okay. They did not. Because she's writing it retrospectively about breech. She's got questions yeah. about breech. So yeah. 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 Okay. Got it. I spent the last two months researching and debriefing to try to solve the puzzle where things went wrong. In episode number 211, she's really a, a connoisseur of our podcast. What, uh, mammal, what nice. mammals know and we have forgotten, you mm -hmm. discuss the cascade of, of events that commonly occurs in a hospital, breaking bags, pitocin, epidural, C-section. You also mentioned how rare it is to see rapid deterioration in the home setting due to the absence of unnecessary interventions. Yeah. This got me thinking, where did my baby's rapid deterioration begin? Do you suppose there are instances in the home setting that can replicate the cascade of events that occur in the hospital? Sometimes I wonder how different the outcome would have been if an individual skilled in breech birth, such as yourself, would have been present that day. I deeply appreciate you and your work. Thank you for all that you do for your community best, Megan. And I said to Megan, thank you for honoring me with your story and reaching out. While I cannot say with any certainty in your specific situation, I can give you my best opinion. Do you know what I'm gonna say? Why the baby uh, heart rate deteriorated like that at the end? No, I'm not, I'm not no, I'm thinking. I'm, I'm thinking it through, but I think if the baby wasn't close to being delivered, you you probably, I mean, you might try to get the baby out, but that's well, no, 65 but to 170. You know why the heart rate was doing that 65, 170 thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, here's what I thought. Sometimes in labor, there can be something called an occult umbilical cord prolapse. This is where the cord is compressed with each contraction as the baby descends because it is being squeezed by the presenting part. It can happen with head down or breech labors, slightly more common in breech, as there is a bit more room for the cord to slip through. A true cord prolapse where the cord actually protrudes from the vagina ahead of the presenting part is what a true, that's the, a true cord prolapse. A cold yeah. cord is what we're describing here. Both are pretty rare at term, but I have seen it several times. This would explain the heart rate abnormalities you described. Cord compression drops the baby's heart and then the contraction ends. The baby compensates between contractions by increasing its heart rate. Yeah. Um, what it does imply when it drops that low, and I'll just say this to everybody listening, is when it drops that low, that baby needs to get out. Yeah. Because, because it's never no, gonna, not it's, not, it's not gonna recover. You're, you're not gonna be, it's not gonna suddenly get better or go away. It's only, only these deep, these D cells only get deeper and deeper. And it's not just the, <clears throat> I mean, although although 65 on its own is is alarming enough, but even the dipping down and then bouncing up so high is also something that is very concerning. Um, and, you know, she wasn't having the urge to push. She asked to be checked to right. see how far she was from delivering. So it makes me feel like she didn't talk about station or anything, but that seems like that would have been a transport. Yeah. So here's what I said. Of course, retrospectively, there's no way to know now if this was the case, but it is likely the best explanation with what little info I have. Yeah. How it might have been handled differently by a skilled practitioner would depend on the station of the baby. Yeah. That's why you're so smart. <laughs> I learned among, from the um, best. Among a few other factors. Sometimes uh -huh. a quick breach extraction is all that's needed. But as you are aware, the skill is being lost. Sometimes a cesarean is the best answer. 
I hope you and your baby are doing well and your trust for birthing in the home remains intact. And she said, thank you. And this makes so much sense and truthfully helps me gain some closure and understanding my baby may have began deteriorating during labor. Baby and I are doing great and my trust for birthing in the home setting remains intact, especially thanks to you and Bliss. I look forward to the day I get to birth at home. Me too, sweetheart. Okay. And I get that. I get that, like going back and trying to figure it all out. But the, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that birth is the great mystery and, and we don't always know. Um, but I'm so glad that her and her baby are doing well. And, um, and they were able to get to the hospital and get the care that they needed. Yeah. And if you have a, if you, if you're hearing that and you don't have the option of a breach extraction or the baby isn't completely dilated or the baby's head down for that matter, then, um, what would you do? do you, you know what you do if you have like a suspected cord prolapse? Get the butt up in the air. Yeah, you 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 yeah. call, you call an ambulance. Yes. And you, you <laughs> Thank get you. A new chest, and you may even have to take your fingers and elevate the presenting part, and often that will relieve some of the the pressure on it uh, on the cord. And then what you end up doing is you you end up riding in the ambulance with your with your hand. You don't move your hand. You keep your hand where it is if it's working. So, yes. Right. Yes. Right. Um, and, you know, the first thing you would do is try and change. But if you suspected that, the first thing you would do is just try and change positions and see if it alleviates what's happening. Um, that would be the very first thing. But yes, if it's and, not, then obviously. Mm -hmm. And that would have been much earlier before it was 170 and 65. That would have been when it was dropping to 90 and 150. Yeah, and she's saying that it was a rapid deterioration, so we don't know. We don't know what that looks like either. Yeah, so. I have this vision in my head because I've seen it before. You yeah, know, right. Yeah. I've, seen, I've seen it in the hospital, so I even have a visual of the fetal monitor. I get what you're saying. Yeah. By the okay. by the way, I, I wanna I wanna just uh, preview something that we have to do next week. And there's an article that I can't believe is being was published by. A guy that I know, he was a fellow or an attending at, at USC when I was a resident there. His name's Steve Clark. And he just published an article about the fallacies of category two fetal heart rate monitoring. And it is brilliant. And it, it, it strikes a chord with me. Obviously I have confirmation bias and I'm, I got goosebumps and uh, uh, oxytocin rush reading, reading this in the green journal. So Great. I will uh, go over that next week. Awesome. I mean, I think that's an amazing topic. We were going to do fertility soon, but we'll just push it another week. Well, no, I mean, that won't take the whole hour, so we'll be fine. Yeah, but it's a great topic to talk about um, fetal monitoring, so we might as well. Yeah, we've never done that? Mm -mm. Okay. Nope. Well, here's my thing on fetal monitoring. Don't do it. <laughs> there. So, no, Stu. <laughs> Listen next week. We'll talk more. Well, yeah, I'll have, the, I'll have the data for you next week, but that's my summary. Yeah. Right. Okay. okay. That's not Steve Clark's summary, but, you know, he is, he's a little more nuanced than me, but I have to be honest with you. I defined that in the Green Journal was just heartwarming. It's great. Yeah. Okay, great. Right. Um, okay. All right. Is it time for a commercial? Oh, Okay, so um, Bam Boobies is a long time supporter of our podcast. We're so grateful. And um, they have so many amazing products that support the comfort and of the mom and baby. Um, they're an eco-friendly 
company that has teas and salves and um, my favorite that Stu always brings up are the reusable bamboo um, heart-shaped breast pads. Um, they're a great gift. If you were looking for something, a way to support the podcast and send a little love to someone that you know, maybe you want to give it to your clients. Um, they are a wonderful company to support. And when you use our code, Stu, do you want to tell them what the code is? You support us and the podcast. Yeah. If you go to their website, that's bamboobies.com and you use the code word instincts, you get uh, 25, 25% off your purchase. That's right. right. Changed, <laughs> he doesn't have his notes recently. today. Yeah. You get 25% <laughs> off your purchase yeah. and they have a, they have a great store there. So they have other, other things. They have salves and teas and ointments and lotions and other things, all sort of natural made from bamboo and bamboo type products. So uh, support them because they support us. Thanks. Thanks, Bamboobies. Bam <laughs> okay. Okay. By the way, I also want to preface that I don't know if we're going to have time next week either, but maybe we'll have to do fertility another time because yeah. uh, the uh, au the author and writer, Naomi Wolf, um, she used to work for the New York Times. She has a sub stack now. She's come out. She was on the high wire this past week with Del Bigtree. And I, I want to go over that stuff together. So I think um, next week we'll do a podcast with the thing from Dr. Clark and also from Naomi Wolf regarding um, what Pfizer knew and when they knew it and what's happening with our pregnant moms and our babies. Very important, okay. obviously, for our topic too. Okay. But okay. today we're going to do hemorrhaging. Right. Exactly. Which ties in actually, because hemorrhaging is, it doesn't just mean postpartum. No. So I'm going to read this, um, this letter. It's from Mag Decker. Um, and, uh, I think, I think she reached out on Instagram. So it says, hi bliss. I wanted to reach out and hear your thoughts. I was 11 weeks pregnant and miscarried. I started to cramp and pass the fetus with little bleeding. And then all of a sudden my body just started gushing blood. It wouldn't stop. And it just kept coming. I went to the ER and passed out one time and almost a second was getting an IV and then ended up with a blood transfusion. I went from 13 hemoglobin to eight by the time I got it. I had a home birth with my son and have had miscarriages in the past. Never anything like this, never any complications. What are your thoughts on this? I just can't understand why it happened um, and just reeling with the trauma of it all. It was the scariest thing I ever experienced. And I don't want to feel that fear next time I get pregnant. So what are your thoughts on why a woman, uh, you know, who has not had multiple pregnancies and is just having a normal, you know, part, well, loss is part of, part of the woman's experience for most women. It's a, it's a high percentage, a third of women can have um, a miscarriage. So what do you think? Well, the differential diagnosis is potentially quite long, but um, yeah. do you know any more about, she says she miscarried at 13 weeks. Do we know it was a 13 week? No, no. she oh. miscarried at 11 weeks. Or 11 weeks. Do we know it was an 11 week fetus or do we, was it a blighted ovum or, or do we, do, did she have a heartbeat earlier? We don't know that sort of thing. No, here. we don't know that. Okay. Because there's, there's different things when, you know, a lot of people will miscarry 11, 12, 13 weeks, and they'll think, oh, my God, I'm miscarrying after three months of pregnancy. And actually, what's happened 
more often than not is that the fetus either never developed, which is a blighted ovum, or there was a fetal demise very early on, five, six, seven weeks. Um, but the placenta hasn't quite figured it out yet. And the hormones of the body haven't, the placenta tells the pituitary and ovaries to keep doing what it's, uh, what it's doing, the, the HCG levels do, which are coming from the placenta. And they tell the body to keep making hormones to keep supporting the pregnancy, even though it, the fetus isn't there anymore. And so these things, the placenta continues to grow, and, you know, it gets more and more vascular. And then you miscarry at 12 weeks and you have a lot more bleeding than you would if you miscarried at six weeks. Um, so the, cause there's a bigger, there's a bigger spot on the uterus, which has now been invaded by the placenta. Um, but often it's where the placenta implants, there could, it could erode into an area where there's bigger capital, I mean, bigger arterioles. Um, it could be that the placenta didn't completely come off and you have what's called an incomplete miscarriage. And that's generally what will really be the cause of this bleeding is that, is that the uterus can't finish the process because the, the placenta hasn't completed its detachment or it's only detached in certain areas. And now it's torn and now you have vessels that are just kind of would normally be pumping into the placenta. Similar to, to, uh, to after a delivery, when we have a placenta that comes partially off. Right. Yeah. You, you have these raw areas where there's little arterioles that are pumping and they, they, they can't, the uterus prevents that from happening, not by clotting so much as by contracting. And a little uterus is, you know, it's harder to, for a little uterus to contract as well as a bigger uterus um, when they're that, when they're that side. So, so that's a possibility is that the placenta was, didn't come out completely or the placenta had eroded into an area where there was a larger blood vessel. And then when the placenta comes off, there's a larger blood vessel and the uterus can't squeeze it tight and long enough to clot it off. Um, we, you know, if she's had a normal pregnancy in the past and she doesn't have a history of nosebleeds or easy bruising or anything, you can't really blame it on some sort of clotting disorder, but that is always a possibility. People can have weird platelet things like von Willebrand's disease or something else where they, or even hemophilia, which is very rare in women, but, but there's variations from the standard, um, X-linked hemophilia where there's clotting abnormalities where people do that, but they usually they'll have other uh, abnormalities of life, like they'll get bloody noses or their teeth will bleed a lot when they brush their teeth or whatever. Um, so that's not the case. And that's really rare. Now you start looking for, you know, zebras instead of horses. Yeah. Um, but I want to mention the, the, um, delivery that I had recently, um, I had asked you about this because she was reporting in pregnancy that she was having some strange bleeding, um, things that like little nicks that were bleeding a lot and, you know, just like not normal. And so you had me do a platelet function test. Um, so that's a good thing to mention. Cause I hadn't done that before it came back normal. And in her delivery, she had absolutely zero issues, but it, it was a, it was another level of kind of of checking the boxes to make sure that I wasn't overlooking something um, that would be inappropriate for her to deliver or that we might want to prepare for. Yeah. And the reason we did that in her is because she was having other, you know, episodes of abnormal bleeding. I mean, yeah. you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that in somebody who, who doesn't cut themselves and then can't get it to stop or gets exactly. bloody spontaneously. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Another thing that's possible. And again, it's unlikely, but it's possible. We're, she could have a submucous fibroid. She could have a polyp uh, that caused it to bleed more because those things are more, you know, more vascular or the fibroid itself is not more vascular, but because it pushes on the endometrial cavity, 
Um, you can have a submucous fibroid that can cause extra bleeding. Again, we're getting into the realm of things that are in the one or two and 3% range. We're not getting things that are common. Again, not everything has a reason, just like we, the lady with the yeah. breech baby. And with the, with the, we don't know that it was a cord compression or a cord prolapse. And here, I, I can't say why, but it is a scary thing. And it's, you know, it, it's problematic for people in, uh, in low access areas. Yeah. Right. Which we, which we don't know. So um, we're going to talk about um, ways to handle hemorrhages. And so we'll discuss um, things that you could do next time to be a little bit more proactive if you feel concerned about having a bleed at your next home birth. Yeah, for her so. specifically. I mean, yeah. other people that have bleeding in the first trimester doesn't necessarily mean you're going to miscarry. Um, but it does imply when you, I think we talked about this, when you have bleeding in the first trimester uh, or even the second trimester that's unexplained, yeah. there may be a little abruption or it may be a little subchorionic hemorrhage or you're not sure why, those women are slightly at greater risk for premature rupture of membranes and preterm labor. So the, you know, when you get to the third trimester, you want to just be a little more vigilant if you've had abnormal bleeding and let your practitioner know that you've had some abnormal bleeding. Yeah. In our world, we're not going to do a whole lot differently. We're not going to make you come in and get monitored. We're not going to be doing ultrasounds every week, but we're going to just be a little bit more on the alert and maybe give you instructions about, you know, maybe don't go on that uh, surfing trip. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, Whatever. being a little more cautious. Right. Mag, thank you for um, writing in and we're very sorry about your loss and um, continue to listen to today's episode to talk about um, what we might recommend in the future. So I know that you wanted to talk about um, when we when we discussed doing hemorrhage, you said we're going to talk about um, miscarriages and stuff too. So what what else did you want to talk about with that? Well, we, 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 did, we touched on first trimester uh, miscarriage. I mean, it's fairly common. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, if, in the world literature is anywhere in the first 12 weeks, something where between 10 and 30% of conceptions will miscarry. Mm -hmm. And I always tend to lean on the higher side. I think it's closer to a third. Yeah. Right, of one third of all conceptions. Now, that may be in the last 30 years. Maybe 100 years ago, it wasn't that way. And maybe there's a... There, there's more problems with conception now. And I'm not talking about just the last two years. I'm talking about in the last two, three generations, we might be seeing more miscarriages, maybe because of uh, stress, maybe because of GMOs, maybe because of environmental toxins, who knows, but we might be seeing more. Um, the, uh, in the second trimester, I mean, so that really pretty much covers first trimester. I don't know what else to say about bleeding in the first trimester. Well, we were talking about hemorrhaging. So I, I think it would be good to maybe talk about what would be a normal bleed after a miscarriage and when would you know, because your your midwife is not necessarily with you or your doctor. So when would you know it's inappropriate and you should go in and get the, some support? That's a good question. That's a great question. The guidelines I give to people after they've miscarried or after they've had a DNC for a blighted ovum or something like that is the following. I say any temperature over hundred degrees is not normal. Mm-hmm. I tell them any cramping or pain that isn't relieved by a glass of wine or a couple of Advil is not normal. And any bleeding where you're soaking a pad more than every you know, half hour is not normal. It shouldn't be more than a, heavy, than a heavy period and it shouldn't last for more than a day or two before it begins to taper off 
you know, and you may bleed for three or four days and then stop. And then a couple of days you might start up again as you increase your activity. Sometimes that causes it or just the clots break down eventually and you can bleed again. But as long as it's not heavy where you're soaking a pad every half hour, um, that's probably normal bleeding. Right. Soaking a heavy pad in a half an hour, you said? Well, I don't know about a heavy pad. I mean, I, I'm not a pad expert. <laughs> <laughs> you're not? <laughs> no. I mean, I, you know, I would, whatever, whatever a normal period is for that woman, it shouldn't be really much heavier than your first or second day of your period. Does that make okay. sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So everybody's different. Everybody's say, different. Right. Yeah. So postpartum, I usually say, um, if you soak through one of the large pads in less than an hour and that's like soaked through. And so a woman, you know, who's, who's had a period her whole life will know like what is saturated and what isn't. So. Right. And bleeding okay. after pregnancy is going to be definitely, well, not definitely, heavier. but almost always heavier. Mm-hmm. You've got, you've got, you know, much bigger area on the uterus that, you know, it's a, it's a bigger thing than, than a first trimester loss. Yeah. But and every, if you're now feeling... and then, every now and then you'll have a hemorrhage yeah. um, with the first trimester where they end up requiring a, a DNC and potentially a transfusion. And now they've got, we've got uh, tranexamic acid, um, TXA, which works really well for those sorts of things. But you want to be sure the uterus is empty. You want to make sure there's nothing in the uterus. So sometimes using a, an ultrasound, a vaginal, transvaginal ultrasound, checking the cervix, making sure it's closed. Um, cause after a miscarriage, the, the cervix should close down again. Uh, if it's still open, you know, a centimeter or two, or you can easily slip a Q-tip right up inside. That means it, it maybe things haven't completely, completely finished yet. Yeah. So most, you know, so most, um, miscarriages will release the, what we call products of conception and, uh, the uterus will close down normally and the bleeding will taper off. But if you are having excessive bleeding, you have a fever, um, if you feel dizzy, or any of that, like kind of fainty, any of that would be a reason to go in and, and, um, and that heavy bleeding to check in and see and make sure that everything has been released because that can continue the bleeding too long. And some people ask me, uh, Bliss, they, they ask me if they, um, if they have a blighted ovum diagnosed by ultrasound, let's say mm-hmm. seven weeks, mm-hmm. how long can they wait? Right. They ask this all the time. And ultimately, there's no real time limit on it. It's very unlikely that you're going to end up with an infection or anything like that. But if nothing happens in three or four or five weeks, most people at that point are going to recommend that you have a DNC to get rid of the products at conception because they're going to say, well, there's a slight increased risk of infection or, or scarring of the uterus or something. I, I don't know that that's all really true because in my training and stuff, we never we sort of skewed our counseling to not let people go that long. Yeah. And now in the last 12 years of doing home birthing, I usually just wait it out because most of our clients want their bodies to do what their bodies are designed to do. Yeah. But every now, every now and then that happens. So there really is no risk to you significantly of, of waiting two, three, four weeks other than the, you know, the mental, mental. anguish. Yeah. Right. yeah. And that's what I tell women. It's like, you know, you really have to decide for yourself what is going to make you feel most comfortable if it's letting things release naturally, or if, um, you feel like you just need it to be completed and then you can get a little bit of assistance. So, okay. So moving on. Second. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Well, second trimester, like first trimester uh, bleeding, second trimester bleeding can sometimes just be uh, a, a subchorionic hemorrhage or a small placental edge separation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's never normal in the second trimester to have bleeding. Mm -hmm. It can also be, theoretically, you could have a cervical polyp or you could have ectropion, as we talked about uh, in a previous yeah. podcast, where mm -hmm. during mm -hmm. sex or something that it gets, I can't think of it, I got to be careful with the word I use here. Uh, it gets <laughs> knocked, banged. No, I can't say that. It gets uh, it gets bumped, okay, okay. And, and it can cause bleeding if it's a little bit irritated. As we said, the vaginal pH will sometimes irritate that um, those those endocervical cells that are exposed. So sometimes bleeding can be from that, but it always should be checked out. Anytime you have bleeding in the second trimester, whether it's bright red or whether it's brown or whether it's what, you should you need to let your practitioner know that. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, in second trimester, you can have an abruption. Yes. And, and an abruption is where part of the placenta, or God forbid, the whole placenta gets sheared off. It's usually following some sort of trauma. Uh, a, a deceleration type injury is the most common cause of abruption. But sometimes it just happened. And what happens sometimes is that there's a little separation and then there's a little bleeding in that. And that little bleeding causes the uterus to contract, which then aggravates the separation and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And sometimes that can actually lead to bleeding that will dissect its way out and come out the cervix. Most of the time that will not lead to an end of the pregnancy, but it is also then puts you in that risk category that I talked about earlier of delivering early. Yeah. So as a home birth provider, if you had a woman um, that was having second trimester bleeding and you suspected that, you'd probably need to send them in for to be on a monitor, correct? Well, it depends how far along they are. 18 or 19 weeks, they're not going to really be monitored. Um, uh, but you might want to send them in for an ultrasound to find out if they can see why the bleeding's happening. I will tell you that it's almost impossible to see a small abruption on ultrasound. You just can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, people will yeah. look for it, but they can look for fibroids. They can look for other things that might be contributing to the problem. And they can also see the babies growing and beautiful. And that's very reassuring when a woman sees blood. It's very nerve wracking. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Third trimester. Yes. Third trimester is more concerning because now you have a viable fetus. And well, you do it, you do in the late second trimester too. But in the third trimester, bleeding again is never normal. Um, and always should be investigated mm -hmm. until you get toward term and you might be in labor, then, then it's, it's a different category, but, but before mm -hmm. that, um, it's never normal. And again, the most common cause of bleeding is going to be a cervical polyp or, or, um, or, uh, an abruption. Uh, you know, we don't see cervical cancer in our population, but theoretically, if you had the, the same reason that you could bleed from metropion, you could bleed. Cancers are usually very friable, but you just, in third world countries, you will, you'll see vaginal bleeding for no reason. And you put a speculum in and you can see that I, I spent two tours in, uh, with the Cure Cervical Cancer Organization in, in, in Kenya and one in Vietnam. Um, and I saw these, some, some bad disease that just gets ignored because they don't have preventative healthcare. And even if they have a lesion growing on their cervix or their labia, they're not even aware of it. Um, and even if they were aware of it, there's not much they're going to, anybody's going to do about it. So, uh, but you can see abnormal bleeding. We saw a couple of clients uh, in the clinics there um, for pap smear screening who had cervical cancer. Yeah. Was the, was the diagnosis, right? Yeah. Um, 
But those are, the, again, they're very rare. A bleeding in the third trimester prior to labor is very rare, but it, it, it should always raise a red flag and should always be something that is brought to the attention and hopefully it turns out to be something minor and, and not important. Right, okay. I don't think there's, you know, the, the amount of bleeding, obviously if you're gonna have a lot of bleeding, it's scarier, but even a little bleeding isn't, isn't normal. Now a little bleeding, if you've had sex and then you wipe yourself the next morning and there's a little bit of blood and there's nothing afterwards or you put your finger in and there's no blood on your finger, you don't, you don't have to worry about that kind of thing. Right. Right. We're talking about blood that sort of trickles out, right? Yeah. Blood dripping down your leg is how I usually explain it. Yeah. During pregnancy, it's a reason to call your provider. Yeah. Practitioner. Practitioner. <laughs> you said it. You said provider a bunch of times. I haven't corrected you today. And, and, it's and within I, there. It's I'm just working on it. I'm working on it. And I, and I don't have my mom's bell here, here in Napa Valley. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So labor and delivery. Well, you tell me, you know, you're an expert in labor and delivery too. So why don't you give a little insight into uh, bleeding and labor and, and when it's normal and when it's not, and I'll chime in. Well, the same thing that we were just talking about, if there's, if there's bleeding, if you're starting labor and you have um, bloody show, that's normal. So that would be um, mixed with mucus. It would be pink, um, it, you know, on a pad or when you wipe. Those are all normal when once your cervix starts to dilate, because then we start to see um, those capillaries, I guess, opening. And um, it's a good sign that labor is progressing and that your cervix is dilating. If you have blood, bright red blood that is dripping down your leg, it is a good time to call your provider and have them come and check on you. And I have had a couple of moms um, who have had you know, they showed me, they said, I, I, it's actually a lot of blood. I'm like, can you send me a picture? Cause you know, if you haven't had, um, a baby before it's, it can be a little confusing. So, um, and I, and I've seen the picture and I thought, mm, yeah, I want to go check on that baby. So I would go and listen and then give them informed consent that, you know, it's possible that this is a partial abruption. It could be nothing, but it could be something. And um, given that they're in early labor, it's probably better to be monitored at the hospital. Um, so I've, I have had uh, one that I can remember um, that we transported to the hospital um, for that because she was in very early labor. And um, and your, your practitioner should be able to um, assess what nor what's normal and what's not normal. Um, so we would expect to see the heaviest bleeding after, after your placenta has delivered, because as um, Dr. Stu was mentioning earlier, you've got all of those, um, uh, all of that. Is it arteries? They're arterioles. They're, arterioles. they're, they're, they're like baby, baby arteries. They're bigger yeah. than capillaries, but smaller than arteries. Yeah. So where the placenta has sheared off, those are all open and bleeding as the uterus starts to contract down. Normally it contracts down to kind of cut off the bleeding in those areas. So that's when we like, after a baby is born, we wait for the placenta and that's when we're kind of on the highest alert to know whether or not a, a bleed is normal or not. Um, I did ask, uh, Stu to look up because the, you said, um, it was ACOG that changed the definition of a hemorrhage from what we were trained 
which was 500 cc's um, to now a thousand, correct? That's correct. Um, which I think is interesting. You want me to tell you a little bit about that? Yeah, I think okay. that's interesting. Something to note. So this is, you know, sometimes you and I mock the idea that they've changed definitions of things mm-hmm. um, because they, they um, you know, they'll change the definition of a vaccine because this current one doesn't meet the, defi- the previous definition of vaccine or mm-hmm. they'll change the milestones for kids because they're not reaching their 18 month milestone. So they'll change it. But this was probably a good thing because mm-hmm. technically speaking, a lot of women lose 500 cc's at a vaginal birth and that's yeah. not significantly abnormal. So they haven't, they've, they've officially changed the definition, but they still consider over 500 for a vaginal birth to be something to keep your, to be alert about. So let me read this. This is from 2017 when they, when they changed their, they updated their recommendations for postpartum hemorrhage. And this is from ACOG and it says, um, by implementing standard protocols, we can improve outcomes. Says Aaron Coffey, MD, co-author of the practice bulletin and professor and chair of obstetrics and gynecology at Oregon Health Science University in Portland. All right, now, you know, I'm going to shrink this for just a second, Bliss, because I want to look at your face. You know how I feel about that. Which part? Oh, by implementing standard protocols, we can improve outcomes. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, in big institutions, I think it's probably true because there's there's too many cooks and nobody's in charge. Everybody's in charge. <laughs> it's it's. It's a fire drill, uh, you know, with characters running around and, and yeah, so they need standard protocols, but I'm not so sure that, that you and I would love to have standard protocols. I think one of the things we'll talk about is having drills with our team yeah. about what to do, but having a standard protocol means that you're treating all women the same by definition. And I'm not sure that that's beneficial. So I'll just put my two cents worth in for that. Um, But they also say that team readiness could be helped with emergency skills. And I, I, you know, I talk to Beth sometimes, and I've talked to a couple of the other midwives around town, and they have these, they practice, they do these skill drills with their team. And I think it makes really good sense for us to do that. I was never, I never really did that with my team. And now that I've looked back on it, I think it would have probably made sense um, to do that. So according to the new recommendations, three components for active management of the third stage of labor can help reduce the incidence of postpartum hemorrhage. Oxytocin administration, uterine massage, and umbilical cord traction. Mm-hmm. Okay. In mm-hmm. the case of postpartum hemorrhage, when the, oh, in the case postpartum hemorrhage is caused by uterine apnea, uterine, uterotonics, which induce contractions of the uterus should be the first line of treatment. Okay. So when yeah. uterotonics agents fail to control postpartum bleeding, treatment should be escalated to include measures such as an intrauterine balloon or transdynamic acid, TXA. Transdynamic acid stops blood clots from breaking down and can be given when initial treatments fail. Research has found it reduces mortality when administered within three hours after birth. So I carry that. I have some in my car for you, by the way. Yeah. Um, which I'm going to give you next week or yep. closely when we're together. Um, ACOG defines postpartum hemorrhage as cumulative blood loss equal to a thousand cc's or more, along with signs or symptoms of hypovolemia within 24 hours after delivery, 
including an intrapartum loss, regardless of the route of delivery, so vaginal or cesarean. Nevertheless, a blood loss greater than 500 milliliters in a vaginal delivery should be considered abnormal and should serve as an indication for the healthcare provider, practitioner, <laughs> to investigate an increased blood deficit, the authors write. So, so does that make sense? Yeah, say um, symptoms of hypovolemia. Yeah, tachycardia, dizziness when standing, low urine output. Classically, um, pale, <laughs> you know, shocky. Yeah, looking, looking, you know, pale. I'll just use the word pale, but ghostly. Actually, you've seen it. You know what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, moving from historic estimated blood loss to actually measuring blood loss is a very important part of providing safer care. They say. So I don't know how well this is going to catch on, but we'll see. Obstetrician, gynecologists, and other obstetric care providers. I would assume that means midwives. Mm -hmm. Can't they just say midwives? Should be familiar <laughs> with algorithms for the diagnosis and management of postpartum hemorrhage. And ideally, should these should be posted on labor and delivery units, the author explains. So again, you know, my thing about algorithms, yeah, it works good in their model, but you know, are you gonna, you know, you, you need to know these things in, intuitively in your head. And I think algorithms are for people who sort of not aren't up to date. That's just my feeling. Primary postpartum hemorrhage occurs within the first 24 hours after birth. Causes include uterine atony, lacerations, retained placenta, abnormally adherent placenta like accreta, defects of coagulation like DIC, which is disseminated intravascular coagulation, and uterine inversion. Have you ever had one of those, Bliss? Not, not, no. Just, I mean, I've had, I've had prolapse, but not an inversion. I saw one once when I was a resident. That's it. Yeah. I've never, I have never seen one in the last 30, 37 I, years. Do you remember if it was a grand multit? I don't, I don't remember it. I was, yeah. I still, I'm still in shock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not something you want to see for sure. Okay. So let's break that down a little bit. So that sounds like the recommendation is um, active management, right? For every woman. That's the, that's the ACOG's recommendation. That's not our recommendation, of course. No, no, no. I'm just saying that's I want to break it down what you just read. So active management for every woman, which includes um, giving Pitocin, um, doing uterine massage and cord traction on the placenta. Correct? Did it say cord traction on the placenta? Did I say it that? Did, it did say cord I traction. I said that. I said that. Oh, my goodness. Let me check that out because I don't remember saying that. <laughs> yeah. Holy moly. Um, oh yeah, umbilical cord traction. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. I, you know what? I just read those words because they're highlight. I highlight. Yeah, I took out my highlighter and highlighted them. Yeah. But that's the difference between when I do it on a piece of paper and when I'm just reading it off my computer. Okay. Uh, I don't. So even that's know their recommendation, and they're saying if with those things you have 500 cc's uh, of blood, you should be um, taking another kind of escalating your interventions to the next step. Yeah, which However, is course, Yeah, go ahead. However, we don't normally do uh, active management, except for the, the woman that I read the letter earlier. I don't have her name in front of me. I apologize. Um, that could be something that could make her feel a little bit more comfortable in doing an out-of-hospital delivery because she had said she had some trepidation because of her 
severe blood loss with her, with her miscarriage. So for people like that, um, at home, you could have active management and you could also have, um, an IV port already put in so that it could be done with a, um, with an IV bag, you could actually do Pitocin in an IV bag, similar to how they do in the hospital. If you have any reason to believe that this woman might have a higher incidence of blood loss, that could be a good thing, but normally we don't do that. So, um, my question is with the changing of this definition. And the reason why it's interesting to me is because instinctually, like you were saying, a lot of, a lot of women in a normal delivery lose 500 cc's. And so it seems like we were stepping in instinctually as someone who trusts birth, it seems like we were stepping in to manage a quote unquote hemorrhage more often than maybe we should be. What is your thoughts on that? Um, I think you're right. I think it's because we're, we're conditioned to do it. We are, right. we are in a situation where we don't want to get behind the eight ball. So we sometimes overreact. I know that I'm a stickler about not wanting to lose blood. One, I think it helps the woman recover and make breast milk to not be anemic. So I, I, really, I don't like yeah. to see that happen. Yeah. Um, Two, I never want to have to transport a woman after all this great work she's done to have a baby at home and then have to transport her for bleeding. So I think it's probably, if you're going to err on any side, you know, at least in our world. Now, I know a lot of midwives then don't do anything because what do they do in the wild? What do they, they say, well, what did we do a hundred years ago? Or what, what do other mammals do? And other mammals generally don't hemorrhage to death. Some do, I guess, but they generally don't. So um, there's nothing wrong with their position too. But I will, you know, ACOG always errs on the side of like intervening medical, medically. Right. That's just what they do. Right. So these are, these are ACOG's guidelines. They're not guidelines for people listening to take to heart, but they're just to know what to do. Cause we just don't, we just don't, I don't like to see a lot of bleeding. I don't know. Well, <laughs> well, I think, I think, you know, getting, getting good at knowing what is normal and what is a lot you know? Okay. So you, you had said that you wanted me to talk about how midwives, um, assess bleeding because you guys weren't taught this. So in midwifery school, um, and probably, um, in training with your team, like Beth does you, you do blood loss assessment. And so what we do is we have, um, (laughs) it sounds kind of funny, but it really works is you use like, um, jello and um food dye to be able to simulate clots and um blood fluid so that you can visualize and you know they would measure it out and put it on a pad or put it you know with a bunch of um four by fours or on a towel or something like that so that you could assess um visually how much that was and you start to get used to it and then they would tell you okay, well, you said 50 cc's, but this was actually, you know, 250. And so you start to get used to, okay, that's what it visually looks like. This is what it feels like. They even do it where they would weigh the chucks um, with the with the actual fluid and then without so that you could you could do that if you wanted to at a birth but you get you get good enough at it that you know what normal and not normal is so it's a guesstimation obviously it's not a specific science unless you're weighing everything 
Um, but I really do think that it, on the fly, you're not going to be able to sit there and have your assistant weigh this thing out. So you need to get good at like, this is a normal amount of bleeding and this isn't. And I think it also has to do with how fast the bleed is happening. If you've got what you can assess. So um, just for people who don't, who are not um, trained in this, a cup of, of liquid is 240 cc's. So if you have, if you poured out two cups, basically of liquid, that would be considered just under what the old definition of a hemorrhage would be. So if you guys wanted to practice this, you could pour out two cups of, you know, some kind of, we usually did it red, obviously, because it, it simulated blood, but just so that you could see it, um, what that amount of fluid looks like. And if you see, you know, two cups of blood coming out of a woman right after delivery, you need to be able to know visually that that is something that you need to step in on. Um, but I'm just wondering, I'm, I like that we question things sometimes. And I think kind of looking at like, is that normal? If we're seeing it very often, is that a normal amount of blood? And we need to be maybe waiting a little bit longer before we're stepping in. Now I've seen women who have lost a thousand, 1200 cc's and been absolutely fine. And I've seen other women who have been uh, fainty and showing um, symptoms of shock. And so I think you also need to be looking at what's happening with the woman as well. And we would like to be able to catch too much bleeding, quote unquote, before a woman's having symptomology too, though. Correct? Correct. Two things. Yeah. One is yeah. you, you also teach how to figure out how much blood is in a, in a water birth too. You guys yes. pour stuff in, a in tub the water. By color. Uh -huh. Right. By color, yeah. by, by, mm -hmm. by how far you can see through it. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you this anecdote because it's probably more common than, than, than I'm saying, mm -hmm. but I remember when I used to be at St. John's hospital in Oxnard, Mm -hmm. And their definition of a postpartum hemorrhage was over 300 cc's. Yeah, I remember which, you telling me this. Which is pretty much every single vaginal birth. <laughs> yeah. But people on the committee, I got, uh, they, they knew that that was the number that triggered a, a chart review. So one of their younger physicians and I were talking one time and she told me that her senior physician in her group told her never to put down more than 299 cc's of blood loss. So again, the deception, first of all, doctors don't know how to estimate blood loss anyway, because they don't do any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. They say, ah, that looks like this. And, and, you know, and they, they think if it wasn't that heavy, I'll put down 200. If it was a little heavier, I'll put down three or 400. All right. But they, they, there really is no objectivity to that. It's all subjective. And, and obviously their subjectivity is skewed by the hospital's policies. Once again, yeah. demonstrating the idiocy of the medical model, which puts a limit on something. And then if you go above that limit, then you're going to get peer reviewed. So why would anybody self-report themselves going over that limit? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, got it. Yeah, so what you, are, these are the people what are, we're supposed to trust with our, uh, with our medical care, right? Ah. <laughs> no, they're supposed to trust us, but okay. Um, so what are risk factors for hemorrhage still? Well, let's, let me just finish this, the rest of this little thing, because it's just one little bit more. Secondary postpartum oh. hemorrhage, secondary postpartum hemorrhage occurs more than 24 hours and up to 12 weeks after delivery. Causes okay. include subinvolution of the placental site, 
retain products of conception, infection, and inherited coagulation defects, such as von Willebrand's disease. Very rare yeah. stuff, but you can see it. Um, determinations of hemoglobin and hematocrit, much to their credit, they say are not clinically useful in the setting of acute postpartum hemorrhage. So drawing, drawing a CBC to find out what are hemoglobin, doesn't matter. Remember we talked about that and uh, I was talking about only, maybe it was at the seminar, but only order a lab test if it means something. You know, they had a routine CBC postpartum all the time at Cedars. Every single person got one. And, and when I was chief resident, I said, no, we're not gonna do that anymore because it makes no sense. If the woman can ambulate, if she's peeing and she's not dizzy or tachycardic, she, I don't care what her hemoglobin is. So it's nice to see that even ACOG acknowledges that. If a patient has tachycardia or hypotension, the clinician should suspect considerable blood loss using usually representing 25% of the woman's total blood volume or approximately 1500 cc's. So they're saying an average woman has five to six liters of blood in her, okay? Mm -hmm. Because such a large blood loss includes depletion of coagulation factors, it's common for such patients to develop a consumptive coagulopathy or something called DIC. So you gotta watch for that when you have a really big hemorrhage, then they stop making clots. So if a woman is really hemorrhaging, but she's passing large clots, that's actually a good thing. <laughs> it's reassuring. Yeah. If they yeah. stop clotting, then you're in real trouble. Yeah. Yeah, very scary. Okay, so what did you ask me? Uh, risk factors for hemorrhaging. Um, twins, multiples. Mm -hmm. uh, placental abruption, obviously. Uh, I think a septate uterus, slightly greater risk because of where the placenta might implant over an area that doesn't contract down real well. Um, infection, is chorioamnionitis. Uh, grand multi. Yeah, grand multi parity, correct. Mm -hmm. um, what else is on your list? I, I'm just drawing blanks. Yeah, no, those those would be the ones that I was thinking about. And then yeah, and again, what is, what, is a, what, is a, what is a risk factor mean? Is this something that we need to alarm our clients about because, oh, this is your sixth baby, so you could bleed more? I mean, do at what point do we say it and how do you present it to them? Because you want to give them informed consent, but you also don't want to plant, you know, seeds of don't think yeah, about what, elephants. Well, I think it's more about your team being prepared and, and for having a plan. And, you know, I think it's possible that you, if you have a real genuine concern, whether it's instinctual or you're looking at her history, um, that this woman is at higher risk for, for having a hemorrhage and you would like for your team to be more proactive in that. I think having a conversation with them and saying, you know, this is something that we can do to be more proactive. How do you feel about that? Um, and I think that that's a reasonable conversation to have so that you, you are prepared because I think that's an important part of being at home is, is having a, team, having the medications that you need and having a good plan in case something does happen. And if a woman, you know, you felt like active management would be appropriate and she declined it, then that would be her right. But at least you knew that you had that conversation and in your mind and in your team's mind, you know, you might, you might have pit drawn up already. You might have, you know, 
you might have already checked out her veins to make sure that you're, you know, you're going to be able to get that IV in if you need it, those kinds of things, or having somebody on your team who's really good at IVs, those, those kinds of planning, I think would be appropriate if you have this instinct or she has a history that you think it might be prudent. I was hoping you were going to say that because, because you, you have a way of saying things that makes, that makes it very clear that that's exactly right is that um, you know, the team needs to be prepared and you need to let them know and you need to offer them these suggestions and then you need to um, come to a decision through the process of informed consent and shared decision-making and stuff and, and, and not just automatically say, I, you're gonna feel a shot in your, in your thigh now, <laughs> which is what happens you know, even in the home sometimes, but it happens in the hospital almost all the time. Right. Yeah. And I talk to my clients, you know, like there's, there's a, there's a time when we're going to be able to, you know, give informed consent, like we can prenatally where you have time to research and talk about it. And there are times when we just need to act, you know, um, if, like I said earlier, if you've got someone dumping blood, you don't have a lot of time to discuss with them, uh, your clinical decision-making, you kind of, you need to, you know, say, Hey, sweetheart, you're bleeding a lot. We're going to give you Pitocin because they've hired you also for that. Unless you've had a conversation prenatally and they told you, you know, for religious reasons or something that they don't want to do anything like that. That's a, that's a very different conversation, but most people have hired you knowing that you're going to step in. You're, you know, you're not going to ask before you start giving your baby breasts. You're going to tell them your baby needs us to breathe for them. Right. These are things, there's certain times when we just, we just do it. And I think that that is also appropriate because you just don't have that time to talk about it, but you, you hire somebody with the philosophies that you feel comfortable with. And that's where the trust comes in for out of hospital delivery. So bliss. Yes. It's time for an element commercial. Yes. Element. L-M-N-T. We love them. Tell us why. Because it's a um, awesome electrolyte drink that doesn't have a bunch of sugar in it. it has no uh, BS, as we like to say it, just like us. Um, they're small little packets that you can put in your reusable bottle. So uh, it balances your electrolytes, gives you everything that you need, and it also takes care of the environment and um, they've got some delicious flavors. Um, do you remember them all? I do remember them all. Let's see. We have, yeah. we have your favorite, which is mango, mango chili, chili. Mm-hmm. Which is, right? Mango chili. And then we have uh, chocolate salt and we have, <laughs> oh shoot. <laughs> ah, there we go. Uh, grapefruit, salt, watermelon, salt, citrus, salt, orange, salt, raspberry salt, raw, unflavored, and lemon habanero. Aren't those so fun? Those yeah. sounds so fun. It, so. It's, it's fun. It's it's healthy. Uh, we all have to drink stuff. And it's better. It's, it's more interesting than water. And it's better for you than Diet Coke. Definitely. Right. So what do they get if they, um, if they use our code? Well, they'll, if they use the code, they go to drink element, that's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts. Then they get a free sample pack with any order. So there's no minimum on the order. If you order something and use that code, you get a free sample pack of all the flavors. Yep. So go check them out and our birth workers, put them in your bag and uh, use them for your mamas and for you. 
Yep, they're no BS, just like us. So I think the only other thing, Stu, would be um, if like you mentioned it a couple of times, if they have any blood disorders, you know, then that would be a risk factor, right? Almost everybody by that point would know that going in, though. That's not something we generally discover in labor, right? Right. No, no, no. Yeah, exactly. And Um, one other thing I was thinking about, Bliss, was uh, somebody who's been, you know, not in our situation, but in the hospital, somebody has been on Pitocin for hours and hours and hours. It's probably more likely to hemorrhage. And I'm sure that because we're talking about it right now, there's maybe something really obvious that you and I have forgot, which happens sometimes. It's kind of like what FTM stands for, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. remember that we couldn't neither one of us could think of think of it and it was so obvious and then first time i don't know how many pe- i don't yeah i don't know how many people that that know you sent me emails or messages on instagram ftm first time mom right it's like of Duh. course it is but yeah but yeah. at the moment we drew a blank and so that can yeah. that can happen in any presentation so if we left something yeah. major out please obviously message me but i can't really think of anything Okay, so the the other thing that I wanted to to talk about, and then maybe you want to quickly talk about the um, the series of medications that we would introduce. Um, From my participating in home birth and hospital births, there's a lot of things that happen when you are intervening in the process that can cause more bleeding. And I have seen it. I've seen uh, trying to get a placenta out really fast. I've seen things happening where it's like, because you're interfering with this process, you're causing more bleeding than if you had just kind of waited and watched a little bit more. So one of the things that I feel like is very important in terms of trying to help prevent any hemorrhage is respecting the connection between mom and baby after the baby comes out and keeping them together, keeping things quiet Um, letting the mom follow her instincts, letting the baby do what it needs to do because suckling at the breast and its little feet um, moving on the tummy helps release the placenta and the mom smelling the baby and the baby smelling the mom and skin on skin, all of that um, is part of the process that tells the body that it has done a wonderful job and it can release its placenta when it needs to, the cord can stop pulsing, the uterus will clamp down. All of this is meant to happen without us intervening. So I think that, you know, at home, we're generally very good about this, but keeping that for, um, you know, maybe pregnant families that are listening, keeping that in mind that that is an important part of the process as well, whether you're delivering in the hospital or not, these are the, these are the things that you want to advocate for is keeping the hormone cocktail as a paramount um, factor in why bleeding sometimes happens. And you think nature wasn't uh, smart when it decided that the same hormone that causes the uterus to contract is the same hormone that causes milk letdown. And so when the baby latches on your breast, um, you're letting milk down, but you're also keeping your uterus tight and firm for the first few weeks after the baby's born. Right. People people that actually go bottle feeding, I'm not sure that there's any data that says they have more bleeding, but that would be an interesting thing to figure that out. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I I agree with you hundred percent. There's a tendency to pull on the cord. There's a tendency to say, okay, it's been five minutes. Or, you know, there's a gush of blood and often there is a gush of blood, but if it's just one gush and then things, the fundus is firm, you can continue to wait. I just want to add one interesting factor in my research this week is I went to the Royal College because I like their guidelines mm-hmm. and the Royal College is, Royal College says this, which is, was really shocking to me. It says 
Um, level A evidence. Uterine massage is of no benefit in the prophylaxis of postpartum hemorrhage. And it says prophylactic uterotonic should be routinely offered in the management of the third stage. So what, what the Royal College is saying is that fundal massage and stuff is, is useless. And level, well, a, level A evidence. I do think that um, we are a little aggressive uh, with with normal bleeding. I think if you're having a heavy bleed to go in and, and do um, some massage makes sense to see if any clots are there because that can help expel some clots. Um, but for a normal mom, I, I think, especially in the hospital, like what I was talking about, some of the things that they do can cause more bleeding. Because if you think about it, if it's trying to coagulate and you're rubbing on it, makes sense. They call it, um, in midwifery school, they call it, um, fundus fiddling, <laughs> like leave it alone. Right. Um, and it's, it, it makes sure that the, it's not rising. Like if you're not having any bleeding and your, and your fundus is rising, then something is happening. So being gentle with that, you don't have to do an aggressive quote unquote massage, which doesn't feel like a massage, but showing the mom where her, her fundus is and, and checking that and checking the blood pressure. Those are things that are just signs that something might be happening abnormally, um, but doesn't necessarily need to happen for every woman. And make, sure, and make sure her and make sure her bladder stays empty, which is always helpful too, to keep mm -hmm. the uterus firm. You know, it, it's really interesting, Bliss. Um, we you know we read these ACOG guidelines. We talk about midwifery guidelines. A lot of the practitioners who listen to us, they've been doing this for a while. Yeah. And I would like to reiterate my distaste for algorithms and things. If you've been doing it for a while, then obviously it's working. Whatever you've been doing is working. So right. to decide to change things because something that we said, or because something that some organization said or whatever, when it's, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's really a, a good I, lesson I, in life. I agree with you. Although, unless, unless you're hearing something that challenges you maybe intervening because you were taught that way and it starts to get you to question things and start to look at like, am I intervening too much? Am I getting Pitocin too soon? Am I, you know what I mean? I think those kinds of things could be questioned. I, I, I don't disagree with that. Although I'm saying that if it's working and you're not having a lot of postpartum hemorrhages, yes, um, you might want to re you're, you're right. You might want to rethink about the act of, you know, injecting every single woman with Pitocin, but uh, because it, I, I have to believe that that interferes with, with oxytocin. Um, it does. So you, you, you know, if you can avoid it, avoid it, even though every, every organization in the medical world recommends that you actively give it because they believe that none of these medications have downsides. It's, right. it's the whole, the no ripple effect. Uh, it's safe and effective um, mantra that has permeated our society right now. Uh, but yeah, I believe that there are some things we can learn on the way of backing off, not necessarily adding on. Right. So, so do you want to go over the medications really fast? Cause we are running we Long. probably well, need to yeah, wrap I mean, it up soon. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there's Pitocin, which everybody knows. Mm -hmm. There's Methogen, which is another inter intramuscular injection. Um, you shouldn't want, you shouldn't be giving that to people with hypertension or preeclampsia. And it is an ergot. Um, it works by causing the muscle to contract. Uh, it has got to be refrigerated, however. So a lot of us don't carry it uh, because it doesn't sit well in a car in Southern yeah. California anyway. Um, 
Then there's um, misoprostol, which is usually the way we use it is capsules or 200 milligram capsules. I mean, not capsules, excuse me. They're, they're these white chalky tablets. tablets. Uh-huh. They're not capsules, they're tablets. And you can give it orally or rectally. Uh, you can give it vaginally too, but if there's a lot of bleeding going on, it probably doesn't make sense to give it vaginally. Um, and uh, that the dose is usually 800, but some people will give more or less. Uh, the side effects from that can be sometimes low-grade temperature and nausea from that. Then there's transignamic acid, TXA or Lysteta. Um, which I carry now. I've used it a few times. It seems to work really great when those first line medications don't seem to be working. And you so, have to put that in an IV. Yes. Yeah. You, you have that. Well, that's another thing we haven't even talked about real briefly is, and I talk about this when I do my, my lecture on, on postpartum emer- or emergencies in the home, in the home world is that when the idea of an IV pops into your head, you should probably start one. Mm-hmm. So it, you, we always want to, we, some of people don't like to do them because they don't want to stick somebody in the arm or they're not good at it or they don't, you know, or, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I've only got two bags left. I'm afraid to use them up because I, I might need them for my next birth. No, don't make an excuse to do it. Just if you feel like you're, somebody's bleeding too much or they're unstable or they're, they're dizzy or whatever, just give them the fluid. It makes all the difference in the world um, to expand their volume and give you access. Should you want to give them something like Lysteta? Or you could even put IV uh, Pitocin in the bag um, as well. So yeah, it'll make them feel better. And those, that concern that you were having earlier is like how would a hemorrhage affect breastfeeding? It's going to help their volume. And so um, it, they'll just feel better if you give it to them. And you and I learned this lesson at the same time because we had a we had a twin birth many, many years ago together. And she had a pretty big bleed. And for whatever reason, nobody, I was a student at the time, but gave her an IV and she just was feeling bad for days. And I think finally, like on the third day or something, somebody went back and gave her an IV because she just was still feeling so bad. So we were just like, why did we wait? We should just give it. Yeah. I, you know, I know um, that case and I, and I don't really know why we waited. I think, yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. There were a lot of us there. Yeah, we learned, we learned, we learned. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, anything else you want to say about those medications, how they might work differently? What do you mean? Well, do you have a, you have a thing that you're trying to make me say? <laughs> <laughs> Pitocin, does Pitocin work differently than misoprostol in terms of what, what, um, what might be causing the bleed? Uh, you know, I, I, I actually don't, I don't know. They, they're all uh, uterotonics. They all cause the uterine muscle to contract. So the I, lower I, segment, mesoprostol work on the lower segment. Um, better? Yeah, not necessarily. Okay. I don't know. I can't answer. I can't answer that. I don't want to say okay. something that isn't necessarily evidence. Evidence-based. Okay. Not evidence-based, just evidence. <laughs> <laughs> not a big fan of evidence-based stuff either because that's garbage in garbage out. Okay. So one of the things I, the last thing I want to talk about before we end is that, um, in this country, our statistics for, uh, maternal morbidity is very high. And one of the places that we lose moms is when they leave the hospital and they go home to, uh, recover and don't have adequate, um, support. 
and there's excessive bleeding. So um, believe it or not, even here in the States, that does happen. It's one of the ways that I think midwifery is is superior to the hospital is because we have really good postpartum care and we're in good communication with our clients and we get, you know, I'm sure that our postpartum instructions are not that different, but there's someone there caring for this mom and making sure and checking in on her. So I just wanted to read this really quick, Stu. Um, This is something, this is something that I got off of um, Facebook Um, client four weeks, postpartum bleeding heavily feeling dizzy, blurred vision, et cetera. This uh, doula says, call her OB and um, send her into L&D to get examined. The doula helps her to go to the hospital. About an hour later, the client calls and says, they are saying that the bleed that bleeding through a pad and my clothing in half an hour is completely normal. And I could just be tired from having a baby. They gave me the okay to resume normal activities. How in the world do you tell a person who is bleeding so heavily that they are um, soaking a pad and soiling their clothing and dizzy and blurred vision that they can now go home and resume normal pre-pregnancy activity like doing laundry all the way in her basement? So this um, came from a doula that was supporting a Black mom And it says, our medical system does not listen to Black people, not an ultrasound, not an exam, just an okay to resume regular activities. So we just sit and pray that her bleeding tapers off and that she doesn't end up in a crisis situation. So this is a real life example of what can happen. Um, And she does have a history. This woman also has a history of postpartum hemorrhage. So... um, if, if you are not getting good care and, you know, here listening to our podcast, you hear that, that this bleeding is abnormal, then you probably need to, um, go to another practitioner hospital, uh, ER, because you should go home and be resting. You shouldn't be resuming normal activity. And, um, this is a crisis. Right. Unfortunately, it happens in the midwifery world, but extremely rarely, yeah. And unfortunately, there aren't enough midwives because this will happen much less commonly if everybody started out with a midwife or had at least had a midwife as part of their collaborative care team, uh, even if they're planning to deliver in the hospital with an OB. Because then, again, obviously, it's not affordable for everybody. Insurance doesn't necessarily going to cover it. So our country is sort of messed up in that way. But this is an example of the shift mentality, one size fits all, algorithmic, mechanized, industrialized medical machine. And nobody cares because my shift is over it in, in two hours. And I go home and I don't carry these things with me. And whatever happened to you, I'll never know or it won't be my fault because I'll make an excuse that it was somebody else's fault or why didn't you, you know, there, there's no personal responsibility. No one's held accountable. Um, we sort of talked about this at the very beginning when we said, you know, if we go after somebody who works for the government, we end up paying for it. Nobody, people aren't held personally accountable or there's no personal responsibility anymore. I don't know how you can look yourself in the mirror when you, do that. And maybe we're all, maybe we'll all have a bad day every now and then where we'll do something stupid, but, but we need to catch ourselves. We need to stop because 
that kind of bleeding is, it, it doesn't even matter if it isn't, if it even is normal. Did anyone listen to her? Did anyone no. listen to the fact that she's dizzy and that she's overwhelmed? And maybe instead of sending her home to resume normal activity, not that they're going to get a lot of help from social services or social work or, or you know, some supportive service in the community, but, but follow up with her, have somebody call her the next day and see how she's doing. But that's yeah. not what happens in the medical model. Uh, as far as I know, it's still like this. You deliver your baby, you go home the next day and the doctor says, I'll see you in six weeks. And pretty much that's what happens. Some offices right. probably have, uh, you know, patient liaison people that call and check in. That's great. But bigger, bigger institutions and stuff like that, they're very impersonal and they don't have it. And you're not going to get better results by repeating the same mistakes. It's the definition of insanity. That's right. So anyways, we had, we had a lot to say today. So I think we should probably sign off until well, next people time. like hearing your voice because last week they didn't get to hear your voice. It was, <laughs> it was just me. And then Sally I'm Ann. Sorry, but thanks for doing that. Nice to see you guys. Thanks for staying with us. We hope that this uh, episode was uh, very informative. And if you have anything to add that we may have missed on our old brains, um, please make sure and reach out. And until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 